Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with journalist, preacher, and farmer, Jeff Chu. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hello, Krista. How are you? I'm good. Welcome. Thank you so much. Where, where are you? Where are you physically? I am physically sitting on the bedroom floor at our house in East Sandwich, Massachusetts. Okay. I like that. <laughs> well, we are um, in Minneapolis, and, I'm, and we're in our studio, which I don't take for granted anymore. We haven't been here very much for the, since March 2020. When did you go back into the studio? Well, we're, you know, we haven't gone back to kind of working here all the time. Um, I now have a place I can record in my basement, um, which works pretty well. Uh, but we've just started, we started coming in, um, you know, it's, I love doing interviews in here. It's just, it's a space full of conversation and memory and also control, right? <laughs> like Chris, Chris has more control, quality control when we're here. Um, the space matters and it matters. matters. Yeah, and it's also a very beautiful space that we built, and so it has wonderful sound quality, but it also has aesthetic. Yeah, I, I sound a little bit like I'm like a. I have a little. Oh, hang on, maybe. Yeah, I, mean, I have a little bit of a weird kind of like I'm in a tin can. Yeah, there's some there's some odd edge to to the noise. You've been doing this long enough that you could hear. I have, yeah. yeah, yeah. Chris is hearing it too. Um, He's just fiddling around with things. Um, so do you live in um, Massachusetts? So we usually live in Grand Rapids, yeah, Michigan. Yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. But we've had this place for a long time. We got married in the backyard here. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're trying to fix up our house in Grand Rapids right now. I see. So we're here for a little while. Okay, I think, I think I've been cured of my tin can. I have been cured. <laughs> okay. Liberated I am from whole. the tin can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can go. Um, just as soon as we finish here, I'm going to get on an airplane and go to Oklahoma, which is where I grew up. Be with my oh, family. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't. So, um, but I'm so, so glad that you agreed to do this and glad that you finished this book um, and um, that it's in the world and that we get to have this conversation. Thank um, you. And I will tell you as we start that um, uh, I also grew up Southern Baptist. I know that's an important thing between you and Rachel Held Evans. And So her dad corrected me. Oh. So her, her theology was quite Baptist. Yeah. But he said we actually attended Bible churches. Yeah. You know, and where and she was in Tennessee, right? She uh she was in Alabama Maybe. until she was yeah. 
at the beginning of high school. Yeah. And I think the finer details of this are lost on most people. But for her dad, it was very important that I be corrected and that I know it was Bible churches. You know, it, that's, it's interesting. But, but what it brings me to is a conversation I've had with a lot of people, which, as you say, the finer details are lost unless, you're not, unless you've been part of this world. But, you know, if I think of the world, and I'm older than both of you, but if I think about the religious world I grew up in, I mean... Just about everybody was Southern Baptist in my town, and also, but Southern, and and now, people would look at that religious world and say we were evangelical, but we weren't evangelical the way you would the, with the connotations that holds now. Right. But there was a lot of Pentecostal, charismatic, and evangelical in the in the traditional sense of the word, like the denominational, uh, the. It didn't, you know, right? Every congregation was different and had all those influences. And there was more fluidity than people yeah. acknowledge. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, Southern Baptist isn't a cookie cutter. No. Right? I grew up in a Chinese congregation, which was insulated somewhat from some of those American evangelical impulses. Yeah, yeah. For instance, I remember... Um, Hang on, don't tell me this. We need to start. Oh, okay. <laughs> I want to ask you this. We can talk for hours, right? Well, no, and I also want to ask you that because I feel like we just started in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let's officially start, and I'm going to get okay. you back there in just a minute. Um, yeah, so... so and wait, Chris, I don't see Chris. Actually, I need to wait until I see Chris. Let me just... <laughs> he doesn't usually... Oh, Chris, can I go? Yeah, he just... Okay, all right, all right. Um, so as I, as I wrote to you um, when we talked about doing this interview, I, I, always, I was always watched Rachel Held Evans and thought, you know, I'll interview her one day. <laughs> and, um, and of course, that didn't happen because... Um, um, life and death intervened, um, but here you are, um, kind of bringing um, her voice back into the world across time and space in that kind of communion of saints uh, um, reality that she that was so important to her. I feel um, so. So, what I want to do is have this conversation. Um, you know, not so much about your friendship with Rachel, but out of your friendship with Rachel and this spiritual and theological conversation that you're still in with her and that now the two of you through this writing are in with a lot of the rest of us. Um, but I want to start um, where I start with almost everybody by, by actually hearing about the religious background of your earliest life, your childhood, um, that formed you, that you bring to this. And actually, um, I, I usually have a very strict rule about not talking about anything serious before the interview starts, because what happened with you and me just a minute ago is that we started talking about this, and and you were talking about your, um, I understand your parents were immigrants from Hong Kong, and you grew up kind of Chinese Baptist. And would you just say, like, what, what does that mean? And also... Um, how is that? How is that resonant? You've had a lot of ease. You've had ease, and you've had complication with that identity across the rest of your life. But, but how is does it resonate in this time of the life? In this time in the life of the world that we're in now. So the churches I spent my early childhood in were Chinese Baptist churches that belonged to the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. 
But because they were also really Chinese cultural community centers, in a sense, we were insulated somewhat from some of the social pressures, some of the social norms of American evangelicalism. I remember, for instance, in fourth grade, when I picked my Halloween costume, I chose to dress up as the devil. (laughs) It's baffling to me now that my parents didn't stop that, that my devoutly Baptist parents were okay with their weird son, who the previous year had marched in the Halloween parade not wearing a costume because I was defiant and didn't want to wear a costume. The following year, I showed up as Satan. Mm-hmm. I don't get how that happened looking back, but there was a certain roominess to our tradition that I don't think fits with the stereotype of Southern Baptists. I think some of that roominess comes from the history of our family, from Chinese culture. My great grandfather on my father's side, he was converted at the Salvation Army or the YMCA, Mm -hmm. depends on who you ask, in Hong Kong. Both of which were profoundly Christian organizations in their roots. Profoundly Christian. And the story goes that my great-grandfather had two spirits who traveled everywhere with him, riding on his shoulders, engaging him in constant conversation. And they started to get very upset when he started going to church in Hong Kong. Oh, that's so interesting that... Bring those things coming together. The very last day that my great-grandfather, who I had the privilege of knowing and meeting when I was a kid, mm. the very last day he ever spoke to his companion spirits was on the day of his baptism. Wow. They were furious. Mm. And they left him. What do I do with a story like that? Yeah. I think it creates room. I think it creates space to imagine things that are beyond what we can see. And that aspect of Chinese culture is something that deeply was deeply intertwined with the Baptist culture that I grew up in. My grandfather, that great-grandfather's son-in-law, was a Baptist preacher and a Bible college teacher. Mm. My grandmother was a primary school Bible teacher. Everyone who passed through the equivalent of third grade at this school in Hong Kong had her for Bible. And those grandparents, because I grew up with extended family as traditional Chinese kids do, they were the ones who probably had the biggest role in shaping my faith. And I treasure that. Mm. I'm so lucky I had that. Mm. When you say that, say a little bit more about what you treasure. I treasure the memory of sitting on my grandparents' couch under a crocheted afghan as they read the Psalms every morning in Chinese. Mm. I treasure the memory of the hymns that we sang every morning in Cantonese, Jesus loves me, trust and obey, he lives. 
these really traditional American Baptist yeah, songs. Which I also grew up with, and they like they enter you at a cellular level. Sometimes I'll be cooking or mm-hmm. I'll be working on my computer, and these snippets of Cantonese, which I would say I'm no longer fluent in, mm-hmm. but these snippets of Cantonese will rise up within me, just popping into my ear and into my mind. And I think that's the inheritance I have from my ancestors. Chinese people believe that your ancestors are present. And I think memory is one of the ways in which my grandparents are present. Mm. Thank you. That was wonderful to hear more of that. Um, I... I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, so this, this is maybe something you and I can talk about for an hour one day if we meet for lunch. Um, you know, you got into journalism. You weren't, you weren't writing about religion. You were, you've written for Fast Company and Modern Farmer and Time and New York Times Magazine. But I, I, it's been my experience across the years that um, jur- religious people in journalism are, can be in the closet <laughs> about, about their religiosity and... Um, I don't know. I just, I just wondered um, if that was also part of your experience. When I moved from the London office of Time magazine to the New York office in 2004, it was a rare instance in which someone who had started at the magazine overseas got to move to the mothership. And the other writers couldn't really make sense of why this young Chinese guy who had been working in London suddenly popped up in New York. And it was just around the time that folks were really trying to make sense in the media of George W. Bush and compassionate conservatism and American evangelicalism and the entanglement of politics and religion. And how my colleagues explained my presence was to dig around in my background realized that I had grown up in some form of evangelicalism Mm. and say, oh, Jeff is here because we need someone who understands that world. Mm. It wasn't that at all. I was a generalist. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I had written about James Bond. I had written about European politics. I had written about books and music. But fine. They had to explain it on the basis of religion. And I'm glad, in a sense, that I've had this lens through which to approach stories because I think religion writing is really more broadly writing about the meaning that people are trying to seek out in the world. It's not necessarily about church or liturgy or temples or mosques. in a box over on the side, the search for meaning and... It intermingles with yeah. everything. Yeah. It intermingles with how we make our art and yeah. how we approach our science, mm-hmm. how we govern, how we are governed. How we treat people where, what are, in all, this, all the ordinary spaces of our lives, I think. I hope. I hope it affects that for many of us. I hope so, mm. too. So your trajectory from that religion-soaked childhood that so formed you, that continued to form you, was also one of a stepping out, stepping away, which is a very, very common trajectory. Um, and, you know, I look at your website and um, 
you say, you know, you call yourself a writer, reporter, editor, preacher, and teacher. And there's this line, you know, some days I believe in God, other days I want to believe in God. Um, and that, what do we want to call this? Like that trajectory, that that drama, um, is very much also what your friend Rachel um, was speaking out of and speaking to um, in so many people in the larger world. And I wondered, I, I wondered if you would like to read um, pages 17, 18 on the days when I believe from this book, Wholehearted Faith, or if you'd like me to read it. Um, I'm ha- I, either way. I can read it. Yeah, no, I'd love for you to read. Second. It's it's large. It it, it's a big passage, but it's just wonderful, and um, it gives a flavor of this book. So yeah, it would be starting at on the days when I believe and ending at, and then there are the other days. On the days when I believe, the sun streaks across these East Tennessee hills, showing me that green isn't one color but a million. The infinite deep blue of the sky feels less like an endless void ready to swallow me whole than an open and generous invitation beckoning all of us who are prone to wander. On the days when I believe the raucous laughter of my kids sounds like the prelude to a grander symphony, a promise of unadulterated joy to come. On the days when I believe I regard the tulip tree outside my kitchen window and learn from it, Rooted but flexible, it adjusts to the seasons, offering its abundant nectar to bees and butterflies during times of flowering, and then seeds and shade to birds and squirrels after that. On the days when I believe, I feel enfolded in a story so much greater than my own. It's a story that knits together a thousand generations of saints which is to say folks like you and me who wrestle with their questions and their doubts, who interrogate the systems and structures of the society around them, who search for a way to make sense of it all, and who wonder whether they belong and whether they're loved. It's a story that makes audacious claims about a man-god named Jesus and calls us into his outstretched arms. On the days when I believe a prayer feels as if it's just another beautiful beat in a long-running conversation, nothing is withheld. Everything finds its place, whether lament or hallelujah. I am convinced it is all heard, because it's a whisper into the ear of an attentive God who loves me and whom I love. And then there are the other days. And then there are the other days. There's a lot of other days. (laughs) Yeah. Was this a passage that Rachel had written before she died? For the most part, Mm -hmm. yes. This is very Rachel. Mm -hmm. She used that phrase on the days when I believe often. And I think it was effective and is effective because it gives so many of us permission, permission to name doubt, permission to acknowledge the questions that we have, and permission to find solidarity among others who also have doubts and questions. You know, um, 
something that feels so important to me in this and that I realized as I was getting ready to speak to you and that we would speak about this is, is kind of not said out loud um, in our life together. And so, so for example, <clears throat> you know, I hear a lot and work a lot with the language and the concept of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, right? The, the ever-growing part of the population that will, you know, we just talk about simplifying something complex, will answer none on a, on a multiple choice question of, you know, what is your religious identity? Um, uh, and the other phrase that's out there is that's just really become this catchphrase, spiritual but not religious, spiritual but not religious. I think you can mark that on dating sites also. But there's this whole other phenomenon that's very much alive, um, certainly in the United States, but I think globally, and certainly within Christianity, and in fact within the very wide swath of Americans who in some way, you know, would fall into that category depending on how you define it. You know, it's as much as 40% of the population. And this, I would say, I want you to work with me on the language, but it's religious, but in exile, or religious and wandering. Um, yeah, I, and you have this, so evolving faith. Did you start that together? Rachel... And her friend, our friend, Sarah Bessie, yes. started it together okay. in 2018. Mm-hmm. And you now lang- do that. Yeah, go the, on, go on. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Sarah and I now co-lead Evolving Faith. Mm-hmm. Rachel passed away about three months after I joined the leadership team. The language that we often use at Evolving Faith is the wilderness. Mm-hmm. The language of the wilderness being called out into the wilderness Because that's what it feels like for so many of us. It feels like a windswept, lifeless space that when you stop and are attentive to it, it's actually not that lifeless. (laughs) Even in the biblical accounts of wilderness, for instance, we have to learn to attune ourselves to the landscape and to the things that are thriving, whether it's jackals or birds of prey or scorpions. There is life out there. Somehow these creatures are finding sustenance and water. And maybe the invitation is to look at things a little differently because we don't have the comforts of the city. We don't have the strength of the fortress anymore. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we're alone. That doesn't mean we're abandoned. Here's some language from the Evolving Faith site. You know, welcome home, questioner and doubter. Question asker, status quo upender, church kid, Bible nerd, rebel, yes you. You wanderer, spiritual refugee, weary one, idealistic cynic, and disappointed disciple. Hello, we see you. Our hope, Rachel's hope, Sarah's hope in creating this space is to let folks know that they're not alone in asking questions, in feeling alienated from the religious institutions that so many of us grew up in. We want to create room for people to just be, not to settle there necessarily, 
but in the hopes that they can go back to the congregations they're in. They can go back to the towns and communities they live in and invite other people who need that space to sit down at the table with us in the wilderness. So many of us are looking for companionship, for solidarity. And our thinking is sometimes you need a little break from the routine, from the church where you feel unseen and sad and bored. But we're not there to replace the church. We want people to realize they can be the church that they long for. They can be for other people, the companions that, they, they, that they're seeking. You know, that language of wilderness um, is very evocative. And, it, you know, an, another image that has come to me in these years as people talk about, you know, the nuns, and, and yet even as that number rises, again, that percentage poll-driven number rises, um, uh, it's clear that religion, religious life, spiritual inquiry, theological curiosity does not is not diminishing the desire to be of service, these these qualities of our of our traditions at their core, um, I feel are as alive as ever in especially in the new generations who 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 don't have the traditional kind of identity or move in and out of it. Um and to me, this this movement feels more like like the early monastics, right? So that's why I'm so I'm so intrigued by your you know the the image of the wilderness, who actually were a spiritual renewal movement on the edges of what at that time was the only church, right? The Catholic Church, um, and the only way to be religious in in, that, in a vast swath of the world, and um, and yet they were calling the tradition to be. To be itself, right? To to it that it, it that it had become alienated from its own deepest values. So you know, when I hear something that Bishop Michael Curry, you know, said of of Rachel Held Evans, so, so you know, she he said she helped mainline Christians stop being afraid of Jesus, and she helped evangelicals know the love of God. And what that points at is yes, the move back and out and opening up that room, but also getting a new view of what seems to be essentially at stake. Love is at stake. And one of the things I appreciated most about Rachel is how she constantly reminded me, both publicly and privately, of the enormity of love, of God's love, but also of the possibility of the love that we could hold together. Mm. I think we need more love in the world. We need more tenderness. We need more gentleness. We need more fierce advocacy for justice. We need more goodness. <laughs> and so many of us just need a little reminder from time to time that love is there. Love is there if you pay attention. Love is there if you turn your hearts just a little bit. Mm. I need that. Um, 
I do. I do want to just throw out here. Now we're going to, you know, I want now to really dig into this writing and this 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 offering that you've been part of with her again across time and space. Um, that you also always said she had a, she joined a Christ-like love with a wicked humor. So we're not talking about somebody who was always solemn and serious. That there was a that there's a joy and a humor. Um, in this in this life too she was an incredibly witty writer mm-hmm. and that was one of my fears when i took this project on because i don't think of myself as a particularly funny person <laughs> and her writing was always spiced by wit mm-hmm. and this sideways glance at life where she could pick out the little detail and give you that little bit of comic relief mm. just as a section was getting heavy. Right. Such a gift when writers can do that. Yeah. So I asked you to point to a few passages that felt important to you or, um, I don't know, got it, get at the essence of this. Um, and I'd like to kind of just go through some of those with you and talk about them and talk about what they what what they mean um, to you, why they're important. And and then I also brought a few that, that I really would love to to engage you on. So are you are you up for that? Go for it. Okay. Um, yeah. So so you know, let's be in conversation, not, you know, about Rachel, but with each other and with her and with the world through these words and the convictions and the questions and the wonderings and the ponderings that they carry. Um, You offered, um, first of all, from the prologue, um, and and it starts with this incredible image of God shrinking down to the size of a zygote. But I, I did, you know, what I, I, I want to flag that what she, what she says right before this passage that you identified is, you know, that Christians are known as Easter people, um, but she'd never found that as compelling as the incarnation. Um, and we're actually, um, you know, putting this on the air around Christmas time, which is that time of celebrating um, the Incarnation. And, of course, yeah, so would you read that, this passage that you sent to me, page four? Sure. Do you have that? Do you have these in front of you? Because I can... I can pull it up real quick. Let me find page four. Scrolling. Thank you for your patience. No problem. We have pro tools to edit out these pauses if we need to. It is nearly impossible to believe. God shrinking down to the size of a zygote implanted in the soft lining of a woman's womb. God growing fingers and toes. God kicking and hiccuping in utero. God inching down the birth canal and entering this world covered in blood, perhaps into the steady waiting arms of a midwife. God crying out in hunger. God reaching for his mother's breasts. God totally relaxed, eyes closed, his chubby little arms raised over his head in a posture of complete trust. God resting in his mother's lap. On the days and nights when I believe this story that we call Christianity, I cannot entirely make sense of the storyline. 
God trusted God's very self totally and completely and in full bodily form to the care of a woman. God needed women for survival. Before Jesus fed us with the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, Jesus himself needed to be fed by a woman. He needed a woman to say, this is my body given for you. Tell me why you chose I love this passage so much. Yeah. Oh, I love it. And I miss Rachel. Her writing about the incarnation teaches me all over again every time I read it. And it strikes me how strange the Christian story is. That <laughs> God would inhabit a human body with all its aches and pains. This squawking, gurgling baby body. A vulnerable and needy infant body. It is such a bizarre tale, but it's also so beautiful. Yeah. It's, um, I think this is something, you know, that the title of this book is Wholehearted Faith, but it's also really about embodied faith. And, um, Western culture in general and Western religion as part of that and Christianity as part of that has been, you know, very chin up. Go sit on a hard pew and listen to someone talk at you. It's very cerebral. Um, and this, 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 this imagery of really, really looking so closely at what are, just as you said, this strangeness, what is being said here? Um, and how it is about physicality. There was a time when I essentially treated my body as if it were the necessary carrying case for the parts of me that really mattered, which is to say my brain mm. and my soul. Mm -hmm. The body was just an inconvenience. It was a reality, but it was an inconvenience. But the incarnation reminds me that it isn't. Our bodies are our first homes. So how do we make peace with them? How do we love them well? How do we honor them? How do we grapple with the things that trouble us in our bodies, but also find the God-given goodness in them? And the incarnation story and Rachel's presentation of it moves me as much as it does because it meets me in my own pain and insecurity. But it also reminds me of the beauty and the vulnerability. Our bodies are as much a part of our human experience as our brains and our souls, even if our religious traditions haven't always testified to that. Yeah. Well, it's been... They've there, there's been such a discomfort and con and complexity and paradox in that teaching. It is complicated. Yeah, but our bodies deserve our attention and our appreciation, even with all their imperfections, even with their disabilities, even with their frustrations and their clumsiness. I'm a clumsy person. I trip over things all the time. I just ran into my kitchen counter this morning. <laughs> right. 
I have struggled with yeah. my body as many of us have, and it just feels so comforting to know that Jesus might have struggled with his body too. Mm-hmm. We know from the story of him cursing the fig tree, just to give one example, that he felt human things like hunger. And I guess that reminds me just to have compassion for myself and for others, because if I, as someone who claims to follow Jesus, if I want to know this Jesus, it means trying to empathize with his human experience, his human body, and to love him wholly means to empathize with what he endured. And to love him wholly means to look out for others too and what they're enduring. Others who are hungry, others who are thirsty, others who are struggling, others who are weary, others who are sad. And I think the gospels are pretty clear about that instruction and contemplating what exactly the incarnation meant and still means that helps bring it to humbling life for me. Hmm. And, and for Rachel Held Evans... Um, there was also this grappling and seriousness about the particular form of incarnation that is being a woman. Um, and the church has, uh, again, in, that, in this sphere, often modeled what things culturally that in fact... Um, would contradict the heart of the faith. And when she says, this last line is just so brilliant, um, that Jesus himself needed to be fed by a woman. He needed a woman to say, you know, echoing the, the, the communion liturgy, this is my body given for you. That is such a stunning line. Yeah. And <laughs> it preaches a thousand sermons just in a few words. Yeah. I'm not a woman. I can't understand the experience that Rachel had of being a wife and a mother bringing two little children into the world. But I can learn from that. Mm -hmm. I can empathize. I can imagine. And I can honor it, too. I think for those of us who aren't women, to ask ourselves, what might women be experiencing the particularity of their journey in a church that has so often objectified women, reduced women, minimized women. I think it's on all of us to ask the big questions about whether we've dishonored something and someone and many someones that shouldn't have been dishonored because God honors them. Mm. Yeah. So you also sent me some paragraphs from chapter two. Um, Let me just see. What is that chapter called? 3132. Oh, is that my wicked little heart? My wicked little heart. Yes. Yes, my wicked little heart. Should I read that? Yeah. Okay. In hindsight, I see that it was my privilege that protected me from the sharpest edges of my own theology. I'm white. I am straight. 
In my younger years, I served as a poster child for the most popular and protected religion in the country, in a town where my brand of the faith happened to, do to dominate. Whether out of fear or devotion or some combination of both, I happily played by every one of the rules. But back then, I didn't even know what privilege was, unless you're talking about the privilege of serving as a young and zealous ambassador for Christ. All the while, many of my classmates lumbered beneath the weight of these socially imposed Christian regulations and their accompanying expectations. They hid their sexuality. They smiled through racist slurs. They minimized their doubts. They kept quiet about their abuse. And then I, there was that last line, now I regret that I didn't understand any of this at the time. So convinced God lived in the boxes I'd constructed, I failed to look for God in God's favorite place, the margins. <laughs> Tell me what this part means to you. As I said, I'm not a woman. I am not white. I am not straight. I am so different from my friend. Yeah. <laughs> and why this passage is meaningful is because she was my friend. She chose to reach out to me and she chose to make room for me. I first met Rachel because she reached out to my publisher when I was nobody to her. And she asked how she could help. And I was honored once I realized who she was, because honestly, I didn't know who she was. I was so immersed in the world of journalism. I had so separated myself from American evangelicalism. Right, you said she was, she was already evangelical famous by the time you met her, but you hadn't been she paying was. attention to that. Yeah. I was not aware at all. And Rachel made room. I think one of Rachel's gifts was that she chose to love me in the particularity of who I am. And I think this was true of many people who felt loved by Rachel. I remember when she first invited me to speak at the Why Christian Conference in 2016, which she hosted with Nadia Boltz-Weber. Yeah. She didn't do what a lot of other folks do. She didn't relegate me to Pride Sunday or Asian American Heritage Month. She just asked me to tell my story. So there was room made, yes, for the Gaijin part of me. But she invited me to be my whole self. And that was true in public and that was true in private. How often do you feel loved for your whole self with all your complications and all your strengths and all your demographic markers and all your personality quirks? I think Rachel's growing recognition of her privilege, it wasn't something that she just sat with. It actually moved her. It moved her to tweet about justice, which was rooted in her understanding of Christianity. It moved her to introduce promising writers to agents. It moved her to extend speaking invitations. It moved her to send emails and text messages with so much encouragement. It moved her to build friendships and to offer support to total strangers. Who does that? 
Yeah, I I love what you just said, and you you somewhere said that you know her her justice work uh, you know, manifested um, very much in the move to friendship, which is such a wonderful way, wonderful image, wonderful way to I think about. I don't think most of us want to be the object of a cause. Most of us want to be friends. Yeah. Most of us want to be known and loved, not just for one aspect of our identity, but for all of us, every aspect of us. And it's so rare to find someone who loves well like that. I wish it weren't so rare. Where that is honored, where that is offered openly and honestly, um, not a gesture, right? With great depth and authenticity. She also knew that she could learn from everyone. It's Mm. one thing to see folks as needing you to come alongside them for the cause of justice. Yeah. It's another thing to say, these people are my teachers. These people have wisdom and knowledge and goodness to offer not just me, but to the whole world. And I wonder how the world might be different if we realized how many of our neighbors could also be our teachers. Hmm. And friends. <laughs> and friends. Friend teachers. Yeah, wonderful. Um, there, you, ta- you spoke when we began about the Psalms, hearing the, those Psalms, um, Cantonese in Cantonese that kind of entered your body, that were part of your childhood, that stay with you. And I'll say one part of this book that, and I've thought about this a lot too across the years, um, uh, and, you know, talk to wonderful people about this, like Eugene Peterson. And um, Rachel actually writes about, or you you and Rachel, in this book that you co-wrote and midwifed, um, um, about the Psalms and about the role of the Psalms. And actually, uh, Ellen Davis, who was a teacher to her, has also been a teacher to me. Um, do you know Ellen? I don't. Yeah, she, I've heard her speak and preach, yeah. and I've read her work, and yeah. I've admired her work, yeah. but I've never met her. She was my teacher of uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible at Divinity School. That's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And she's a great friend now, and I just loved reading her about her in this book. Um, I like what I, what, I, what I have loved, and what I, I loved how Rachel called out is how the Psalms, which are the prayer book of the Bible— um, invite us to bring absolutely every experience and every emotion um, it, it before God. And, um, you know, there's a, and there's also a lot of railing against God, and, and, that, can, and that can coexist with, um, with, a, with a turn of praise or lament. Um, I'm just looking at... Um, she, oh, she says, uh, the Bible scholar Ellen Davis, um, the Psalms, she explains, are about speaking our mind honestly and fully before God, um, which which is, you know, an implicit message in that kind of religious upbringing that you had and that I had is also somehow that God couldn't handle it, right? <laughs> or that something terrible would happen um, if some things were brought before God. 
and um, and yet here it is modeled um, at the heart of the Bible. And I was here was the part I thought I might read. Um, uh, yeah, let me see. Oh, I know what it. She says so. These prayers give us the words. This is she's quoting Ellen Davis. Give us words for all the moods in in which we come before God, adoration, exaltation, gratitude, but also rage, despair, fear, those feelings which as saints we feel required to deny. But what good is sainthood if it's only half human? What point is there to being with God if we can only do so while partially masked? She, 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 she quotes a passage in Ellen's book where she meditates on Psalm 102 and these lines, For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have lifted me up and thrown me aside. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And then here's what you, what Rachel and you together wrote. I get this. For the past few years, my regular cocktail has been a shot of my own tears stirred with a shot of Jack Daniels, a drink I call America Under 45. But maybe praying this psalm or some version of it would be a healthier option. This psalm would have provided to ancient worshipers the balm that only clear-eyed examination of one's situation could. This psalm does for them what promises of long life and abundance could not do, Davis writes. It locates their reality on the map of faith. And then, this is one of the things I've been missing in many contemporary articulations of Christianity a raw, unadorned expression of how much things can truly suck. <laughs> the psalmist can be kind of a drama queen. <laughs> like us. Yeah. The psalmist can be really rude. Mm -hmm. The things that the psalmist dares yes. to say to God, yeah. on the face of it, how can you say that to the creator? Mm -hmm. And yet when I look back to the way I thought about prayer when I was a kid, I realized I was praying to a really small-minded God. And I had this conception of God that somehow allowed me to believe I could keep secrets from God. And but what's the point you of had keeping to, secrets right? also, from someone who already knows? Right, right. If God is God, yeah. If God is God, mm -hmm. if God truly knows me as intimately and as closely as a big and powerful and gentle God can and should, what's the point of censoring myself? And I think there's a beautiful invitation in so many of the Psalms just to let it all hang out, to put it out so that you're not wrestling with this stuff alone, so that God is invited alongside you to try to make sense of the mess. 
I think it's important too that not every psalm resolves in praise and adoration. Right. If you look at Psalm 88, it ends in despair. You end up sitting there in a pile of ashes. And yet, there's still Psalm 89 and there's still Psalm 90. There's the whole prayer book because that's not the end of the story. Yeah. Um, just kind of following on what you just said about this, you know, the image of God. And, you know, one thing, one of the fascinating things to me in this time is that even as religion in these forms um, that it had that, you know, coming out of the 20th century is, 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 in, is in incredible flux. Um, the word God is rising and you know and it, it's it's like it's a it's a word that we can't let go of and i think also you know you were speaking at, in the beginning about this notion of room roominess and i feel like there's you know i hear scientists using the language of god and it it's wide open what that means um the word obviously has always been too small uh so that's that's a, that's a fascination for me. And um, here's here are also some lines of the book about just kind of honing in on what is that, how how narrow that image became, and kind of opening it wide again. Um, the God I have come to believe in is not some stern grandpa in the sky, waiting in quiet exasperation for me to slip up, which I inevitably will and then tallying up my acts of faithlessness and righteousness versus my deeds of ingratitude or moral failure. Rachel said, the idea of that kind of God doesn't sit, with, doesn't sit well with me at all. Instead, I've come to see God through the things that God has done, that God met Peter on the stormy waters of faith and took a holy sledgehammer to my self-constructed certainty. That God is the architect of creation the engineer of love, and the master craftsman who came up with the idea of the heart. So one of the most important teachers of late for me, and a teacher who was incredibly important to Rachel as well, uh, is Will Gaffney, who is a Hebrew Bible professor at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. Dr. Gaffney recently published a women's lectionary for the whole church, which is her way of working through the church year and lifting up the stories of women. And one of the gifts in that volume is the appendix in which she lists all the names of God that she chooses to use. And there is such beautiful imagery as she is trying to set aside the patriarchal history of how we have named God. Maternal images, nurturing images, powerful images. And that is such a gift in the way that names can help us reframe. Names can guide us. Names can point us in a different direction. 
Yeah, there's um, there's also there's this is this is a little bit this is taking this is going in a different direction, but you know, there are physicists talking about what we mean when we use God, and also inserting you know what we're learning about the laws of mathematics and the nature of reality. I mean, I think all of that is offered up to us. I don't think God and science, faith and science are in opposition at all. If anything, the more we learn about the intricacies of the universe, the more I am inclined to a sense of awe and wonder at what is out there at, in my view, the designs, the beauty the magnitude of creation. What was that? That line I just read. I just want to read that again. It just such again such a wonderful line. The master craftsman who came up with the idea of the heart. <laughs> Some days we might wonder what God was up to in creating the heart, depending on what kind of torment or sadness we're feeling. But yeah, the heart contains so much. We have these images in scripture of famously Jeremiah saying, the heart is deceitful above all things, right? A verse that caused a lot of suffering for a lot of us in church over the years. But then there are so many beautiful images of the tenderness of the heart and the goodness of the heart and the ways in which the heart uh, can lead us towards good. I love the Hebrew phrase, the thoughts of the heart, which breaks down that duality that so many of us grew up with, that the heart is the place where wisdom can be rooted. Yeah, I think, I think the heart in the Bible is also about imagination. Um, and also I think of the rule of Benedict Listen with the ears of your heart, which is a nonsense sentence, but we all know what that is, right? I think we've tried to tame the heart. Yeah. We're afraid. We're afraid to imagine. We're afraid of expansive landscapes. But why? If God is here, if God is among us to try to grow us, What's the fear about? I don't know. So, so this language of wholehearted faith, which is the title of the book, I know that Rachel was inspired by Brene Brown's work on the qualities of wholehearted lives. And in some ways, this is investigating, like, what, it, what, what, it, what is wholehearted faith? But I wonder, I just want to ask you, at this point, having, having, having helped bring, having been a writer and, an, and accompanied and kind of, um, you know, brought this, this Rachel's voice and your voice into the world at this moment in time, you know, how would you describe if just, I mean, we've been talking about it the whole time, but how, how would you start to give an answer to what? what is meant by wholehearted faith? And what is it? 
what is this notion being offered up to kind of expand upon or repair in terms of how faith has come down in many ways? Honestly, I think the point of Rachel's whole book and Wholehearted Faith, I should say, was her original title for this. So mm-hmm. we didn't change that. Okay. Wholehearted Faith is about recognizing our belovedness. If we are truly loved, what are we afraid of? If we are truly loved, nothing is beyond the limits of our imagination and our exploration. Nothing needs to be condemned. Nothing needs to be censored because everything is going to be redeemed by that love. I think that's what wholehearted faith means. It is about giving folks the courage that they need to get through life in a world that can be cruel, in a world that can be full of injustice. But it invites us not just to sit there and suffer silently or to sit there and watch others suffer silently. It asks us to show up. It asks us to show up with our hearts and with our minds and our arms and our legs and all of us. In some ways, maybe it should be called whole body faith. Yeah. Not just wholehearted faith. You know, I I really appreciate how this conversation we're having and this book they're not about they're not about playing into the arguments and the divisions um and the caricatures um and and the excesses um that are alive in term in 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 kind of public religiosity and um, and I wanted to read this this part that to me, again, is kind of it kind of recasts. Um, it you know kind of offers um, up a description of a way forward. Um, let me just read it, and I I want to know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Faith in Jesus has been recast as a position in a debate not a way of life. But the truth is, I've found people to be much more receptive to the gospel when they know becoming a Christian and being a Christian doesn't require becoming a know-it-all. That is a form of faithful freedom too. There is liberation in not having to know everything and not having to impress everyone with that boundless knowledge. That liberation is rooted in a profound humility the ability to say that God is God and I am not. Humans have made some enormous mistakes when failing to distinguish between God's perfection and our fallible selves. And many of us have found a renewed sense of possibility when we've realized how much of God's beauty remains to be explored and that the life of faith is also a life of holy curiosity. Anyway, most of the open-hearted wanderers I've encountered 
we're back in the wilderness here, are looking not for a bulletproof belief system, but for a community of friends, not for a spiritual encyclopedia that contains every answer, but for a gathering of loved ones in which they can ask the hard questions. So many of us spend so much of our lives craving other humans' approval, practically begging for it. I know I have. I know Rachel did. And one of the things about this book is that it reminds us we don't need to do that. We don't need to do that anymore because our belovedness to God sets us free from the need for human approval. It is, to appropriate Ecclesiastes, it's chasing after the wind. We're never going to find the satisfaction that we seek from winning an argument on Twitter or getting more likes on Instagram or winning a debate. I think we unwittingly give other people so much power over us when we engage in the usual discourses. I've seen folks draw a line, for instance, saying that they won't engage with anyone who doesn't fully affirm all of them, including their sexuality. I've had people tell me that as long as my parents aren't affirming of my sexuality, which they are not, I shouldn't go home. Mm -hmm. I get that for some people that might be a right and good and healthy boundary, but for me it's not. When I can remember my belovedness to God, I choose to set my boundary in a different place. Because here's the thing. If I were to set other people's affirmation or lack thereof as my litmus test, I know the way my heart and mind work. I'm putting myself in a reactive position. I'm giving the other person a lot of power. I'm letting them set the rules of engagement. I'm asking them for respect. But I already have God's love. My dignity is my God-given dignity, whether others acknowledge it or not. My marriage is good, whether others acknowledge it or not. My body, which is flawed and weird and sometimes painful, it's lovely, whether others acknowledge it or not, and even whether I acknowledge it or not. I think it's a deeply human need to want to matter but the ultimate mattering is mattering to God. And on my good days, I believe I matter to God and that God loves me and my belovedness to God is unaffected by any other human being's evaluation. And kind of to, you know, where the rubber meets the road on this also, it's you, you, are, you are now a candidate for ordination in a denomination that may not ordain you. Right? Yes. Because I of am. your sexual identity. Correct. So why 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 stay in that denomination rather than find one of the many <laughs> that would would not see your, you know, the fact that you that you're married to your husband as an issue? There are certainly times when I've been tempted to go. There have been moments where I look back at this ordination journey, which has dragged on and on because my denomination keeps punting on making a decision. When I think I am out of my mind, 
And often I go back to my husband and to my closest friends and to God and I ask, what do you think? (laughs) And in those moments, there have always been suggestions that no, it is not time to go yet. And I don't want to get all woo-woo, but in Christianese, I'd really describe a few of those moments of discernment as interventions of the Holy Spirit. Because when I think, no, I really don't belong here anymore, something happens that practically shouts to me, no, you're on the right path. You can do this. Uh, Part of the reason I stay is for the kids who are coming up who might be able to see something of themselves in who I am. I was at our denomination synod a few years ago where they were talking about me as if I weren't in the room. Hmm. Both the documents that year and the delegates discussed a married homosexual who was in the ordination process. Right, right. I tremble every time I speak publicly. If you were in the room with me right now, you would see that I'm shaking uncontrollably. Mm. And even though I desperately wanted to avoid it that day, I felt I had to go to the microphone and let the 200 odd folks in that room know that this married homosexual that everyone was talking about was there. (laughs) Mm. And I had a face and I had a body and I had a voice and I had a story. It's too easy to talk about me as if I'm an it. And I wanted to complicate that a little bit. And after I spoke and after I reminded them that I wasn't just a married homosexual, but also an elder in the church and also a fellow church member and also a fellow human with a skin and a spirit much like theirs, a couple of young queer delegates came up to me and they were part of the youth program that year. And they thanked me for being present because it told them that they could be present. Mm. And that meant the world to me because in congregations around our denomination, in churches, in many denominations, there are queer kids and kids of color and queer kids of color and disabled kids and all manner of marginalized kids who wonder, do I belong? Is there room for me? And if just one person thinks there's room for me in the church, in my church, then I think it was worth it for me to stay and to stand up and to say something. But I do want to say it's equally important for those who feel called to go, to go. Mm -hmm. Because that can set a good example, too, for some kids and really for all of us. People need to know that it can be right and good and healthy to stay, but sometimes it's right and good and healthy to go a different way. It's not for everyone. I really think it has to be a calling, and I know that term is sometimes overused, but some people are called to go and some people are called to stay, and it's not for me or for anyone else to tell someone what their calling is. I think it's it's something you have to discern with your God and with your close circles of trusted community. I keep, I keep coming back to that image that you offered right at the beginning of the conversation is room. That, this is, that there's much more room here to discern and to be, and it's, it's all more spacious than we've made it. Um, I, we, we need to draw to a close, but I do wonder if you'd say a little bit before we finish about your theology of compost. <laughs> the, 
the theology of the compost pile mm-hmm. is something that I learned when I was at seminary at Princeton. Princeton Seminary has something called the farminary. Farm plus seminary equals farminary. And I am not a farm kid. I want to be clear about that. I did not grow up on a farm. And the first time Nate Stuckey, the director of the farminary, invited my cohort of students out to the compost pile, I thought it was disgusting. It was rotting vegetables and banana peels and coffee grounds and all these things we would typically see as trash, as waste, which gets carted off to a landfill out of our sight. And the compost pile changed that for me because Nate told us to dig around in the compost pile and look for signs of new life. And if you do that, you will find them, worms and grubs and then deeper down the beginnings of good soil, which is the work of this wondrous, almost miraculous transformation because air and water and these creatures are working together and doing their thing and turning the stuff of death into the stuff of new life. And that taught me that there is an opportunity to steward death well when death happens, which it will, not erasing the pain, not erasing the brutality, but acknowledging both it and the possibilities that still remain afterwards. There is a good way to tend to death, but that requires not turning away from it. And again, that's not to say there's no grief. There should be grief. When you lose something good, when you lose something you've loved, when you lose the sense of being actively loved, that is worthy of grief. But that can't be the end of the story. I refuse to believe it. I refuse to believe that death is the end of the story. And that's the lesson of the compost pile. I think it's also a lesson of this book that you've helped bring into the world, right? That your friend Rachel was writing. And... um, and was not finished when she died, and and now it is in the world, and it's a, a transformed thing in a transformed world. I mean, uh, you know, when she died, which was in May 2019, is that correct? Mm-hmm. She was this young woman with that young baby, and it was this senseless, right, a complication of the kind of infection any of us could get at any time. So shocking, and then I—I I don't know. I have, I have thought, and I—I I wonder if you have thought about how. I mean, less than a year later, we were in a world in which there was senseless dying all around. There is so much sorrow. There yeah. is so much grief in this world. I think the pandemic has brought that home both literally and figuratively, to so many of us. I am sad. I will always be sad, as will, I expect, Rachel's husband and her parents and her sister and her closest friends. And I know that sadness will shift shape and its contours will change. But I think the sorrow and the grief will always be with us. So how do you make peace with that? I think grief is the embrace that we no longer get to share 
I think grief is the thanks that we can no longer express in person. I think grief is the love that has to find a place to go now that the person we're grieving is no longer here. But maybe one lesson is not to be afraid of the grief. Hmm. Maybe I don't even necessarily want the grief to go away because why would we want to deny the depth of the feeling, whether it's the grief or the love that is its foundation? And I wonder what would happen if we welcomed and acknowledged grief as a companion rather than running away from it or trying to tamp it down because grief invites us to examine our loves and our longings. Are they healthy? Are they real? Are they based on a fantasy? Are they rooted in truth? And I know that my grief and the grief that so many other people are experiencing in the world right now, it cuts as deep as it does because the love is as profound as it is. Hmm. Um, you know, part of... Um, well, it, it, part, of, part of Rachel's trajectory was kind of growing up in a... Um, you know... What did you say? A Bible. It's been said Southern Baptist, but actually a Bible. Kind Bible of a churches. Bible church, which is a kind of. I don't know how to. I mean, I, you and I grew up in this. We know it's. Um, it's a funny subculture. It's not. Yeah, it's not a rigid denominational thing. It's no. Uh, she grew up in mostly non-denominational Bible churches. Yeah. Okay. So non-denominational Bible churches, and then. Eventually became Episcopalian, discovering liturgy and also um, one of the things, there are so many gifts of these non-denominational traditions or, or even, you know, the Southern Baptist Church that you and I both grew up in. Um, and, you you know, one of the, th you don't get the full sweep of Christian liturgy. And, you know, one of the things I noticed that... Um, she found in um, is this this notion this notion of being accompanied across time and generations the communion of saints right that being in a lineage of faith um, and to me what that also is about that lands. So, um, with with such gratitude, in this in this culture where we're all so alone and have taught to been taught to be individuals, um, is that all of this—the grief, the love, um, all of this mess and drama and beauty of being human. Um, we're not meant to carry any of this by ourselves, that we're accompanied. And I wondered, and you know, she is she has been accompanied in the in the completion of this book, Beyond Time and Space, with you. I wondered if we might end with you reading actually another part from the beginning of the book. Um, page two. Um, Art, do you have your book open? I do. So 
on those days and nights. So we we started with you know your question or your 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 observation, her observation. Some days I believe in God. Other days I want to believe in God. Um, and this kind of picks up from that in a different way. So starting with on those days and nights and ending with um, on the next page, a belonging. On those days and nights when my most honest answer to the question, why are you a Christian, is just, I don't know, why not? That might seem like a paltry and pale version of yes, but it is a yes nonetheless. For better or for worse, there are seasons when we hold our faith, and then there are seasons when our faith holds us. In those latter instances, I am more thankful than ever for all the saints, past and present, who said yes, and whose faith sustains mine. They believe for me when I'm not sure I believe. They hold on to hope for me when I've run out of hope. They are the old lady next to me in the pew and the little kid behind me who recite the entirety of the Apostles' Creed on my behalf on those Sundays when I cannot bring myself to say all those ancient words wholeheartedly. Is this what I really believe? They pray for me when the only words I have to say to God are words that I refuse to allow to be printed on this page because they would make even my most foul-mouthed friend blush. I've come to believe that wholehearted faith isn't just about coming to terms with the heart that beats inside me. It's also about understanding how God has knit together my heart with the hearts of that old lady and that little kid. Wholeheartedness is about seeing and comprehending my place in a bigger family of faith, just as parenthood has transformed my understanding of my role in a bi biological and social unit. It is about risking hurt and confusion for the sake of the thing that so many of us seek, belonging. Do you want to say anything about that? I want to belong. <laughs> Isn't that one of the greatest desires of every human? I don't know that we can remain tenderhearted alone. I don't know that we can survive alone. We weren't built for that. We need community. We need love. We need to belong. Okay, Jeff, thank you so much. I'm really excited about putting this out at Christmas time and in a, you know, a hard Christmas time. I hope it gives you enough to work with. I oh, absolutely. What I was talking about. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's, there's lots to work. Don't worry about that. Know. We're great. Right. I'm just blathering on and doing my thing. So. Well, yeah. Okay. That's what I asked you to do. You were invited to blather, and you blather <laughs> very eloquently and with a lot of substance. So thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you, so you much. for the time you've invested in this. Thank you for caring about this book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah, I, I, I know it's doing well, and I, you know, I think we can also uh, introduce it to more people. And um, I think I'm going to hand you back to Chris okay. for the logistics. Sounds and good. I wish you a blessed Thanksgiving. Have safe travels and uh, enjoy you. the time in Oklahoma. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye bye. <laughs>